Amen. Well, good morning, everybody. So glad to uh, continue our series that we've been in, a series in the book of Acts, a study in the book of Acts called Scattered. And uh, I hope that you're reading kind of each chapter that we're in, either before or right after the service, so that you can stay up with what's happening. And if you'll remember, the, this, this New Testament church had started in Jerusalem, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. 3,000 people are saved on the day of Pentecost. And God's plan was to empower his people so that the gospel would go from Jerusalem to Judea, to all of Samaria, and then eventually to the ends of the earth. And it's amazing to see how the gospel of good news of Jesus Christ spreads like wildfire. So we left off in chapter 3, the story about Peter and John just going about their daily life. And uh, they're working. And then in the middle of the day, they're on their way to the temple. And they run into this lame beggar who is in his 40s. And he's asking Peter and John for some money. He's looking for a handout. And they say, we don't have any money, but I'm going to give you something even better. I'm going to give you Jesus. I'm going to give you hope. And so in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. And the lame beggar not only walks, but he begins to dance around and leap around and praise God. And a crowd gathers because they knew this guy. I mean, this guy was a known quantity in the city. He was always at the, at the temple gate. And now he's praising God. He's completely healed. And Peter, he's not wasting this opportunity. So he preaches his second big sermon. And he tells them the truth about themselves. And he offers them pardon. And he demands a response. And then from there, we pick up where we're going to look at today in Acts chapter 4. So if you have a Bible app, open it up. Or if you have your Bible right there in your lap, go ahead and open it up to Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Here's what the Bible says. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests... And the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. Now, that's Peter and John after this lame man had been healed. And they're preaching this sermon. And now the Sadducees are greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. Now, why were these guys so angry? The Sadducees had two problems. First, they didn't like Jesus because he had been a threat to their power. And then secondly, they were a group, a sect of religion that did not believe in the resurrection for anyone. So they had no Messiah and they had no hope. And so they were sad, you see, did you get it? Yeah, that's a masters of theology hard at work right there. Okay, so the city officials, they were angry. And it says in verse three that, they arrested them and they put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. This group of religious leaders, they had the authority to put these guys in jail. So they keep them overnight in custody to prove their authority and power. Now listen to verse four, and this is crazy. But many of those who had heard the word believed and the number of men came to about 5,000. You'll remember, Peter had already preached a sermon where 3,000 men came to Christ and here, 5,000. That's not counting the women and children. So probably 
12, 14,000 people now in this city that normally contained 30 or 40,000 people. This is a move of God happening. There's like 30% of the city population converted through these two messages. And then uh, we'll pick up in verse five. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, I sometimes call him Annas, the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired by what power or by what name did you do this? And then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit, he said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Many people are spiritually hungry and thirsty for the truth, but there'll always also be those who are offended by the truth as well. Doesn't matter how loving you come across, how kind hearted you are, there are people who will be offended by Jesus and by the message of Jesus. I'm not talking about offended by mean spirited, rude Christians. I'm talking about city loving, servant spirited, compassionate, caring Christians who declare Christ, him crucified, that every single one of us are dead in our sins and trespasses and we need a savior, a rescuer, a redeemer, and that there is no other name that we can be saved except through Christ. And that message will offend some people. And there are those times when those people will also persecute you or the church and they will do what they can to intimidate you or marginalize you. You could be labeled as that crazy Christian at work or at school or in your neighborhood. See, it's still true today, but remember, there are always people that God is speaking to who are hungry for the message whose lives will be transformed when you share your faith. But not everyone will view the good news as the good news. God meets us where we are, but he loves us too much to leave us there. He tells us the truth about ourselves and that truth sometimes offends. Without truth though, we'll never be set free. Without truth, we'll continue to live a double life. Without truth, we'll never experience redemption. There's nothing like being set free from toxic sin. What a dead end to just keep justifying my soul sucking lifestyle. How unhealthy to keep bearing the guilt and the shame, hoping it'll just go away or just trying to live by my own rules and be my own God. You see, God shows up and he tells us the truth about ourselves. And he says, you know what? You're living in rebellion. You can't fix you. You make a lousy God, by the way. 
and I have wrath towards your rebellion. But instead of giving us judgment, he offers us grace, full pardon and forgiveness. Thanks be to God. Verse 13 says, now when they, these officials, saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Underline that. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. The officials recognized these are just common everyday Joes. Nobody is amazing here. There are no superstars. There are no uh, highly educated among them. There are no super successful. It was clear though, that these men had been with Jesus. Something about their life, something about their faith, their boldness, their prayers, this unmistakable aroma of Christ. Let me ask you, if you were interrogated, followed around by a PI, and they looked at what you did with your life, with your time, how you spent your money, what you said in your private life, you know, had one of those little circular things where they're listening in and they followed you around. Would they gain enough evidence against you that you were with Jesus? I mean, if you were on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Let's look in verse 15. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another saying, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. I don't know about you, but this is so illogical. It blows my mind. There's this authenticated miracle of a person who was known in the city to have been crippled from birth and they are miraculously healed. It awakens the whole city. And I mean, now this guy is like a contender for dancing with the stars. And these officials say, we, we see that there was a miracle done, but just don't do it again. And by the way, don't speak anymore in the name of Jesus or we'll throw you in jail. I mean, some people just look for reasons why not to have faith in Jesus. I love my dad. He and I are super close and I just keep praying for him. He's 82 and he still just doesn't think that Jesus is for him in any way, shape or form. Now, the interesting thing about our relationship and my dad and his kind of lack of following Jesus and his lack of faith is that I've been walking with God now for 40 years. And uh, two of my, I got saved and came to Christ when I was around 19. Two of my brothers became Christians soon after me. And we all became pastors. We all became church planters. My sister also became a Christian soon after. And she's followed Jesus her whole life. My mom became a Christian. My stepdad became a Christian. My stepmother, who's my dad's wife, became a Christian. All of us, powerful transformational stories. 
My dad later adopted a little girl who's now my second sister, and she too became a Christian, and her husband is a Christian, and all of my dad's grandkids are Christ followers. My dad's best friend became a, a, a sold-out Christ follower a couple years before he died. I mean, my dad is just like circled with everybody he loves in his life, with transformed lives, testimony after testimony, people 10, 20, 30, 40 years of walking with God consistently. I'm not talking about, you know, cultural religion. I mean, life transformation. How long can a person hold out, right? I mean, at some point you wonder, what more do you need to convince you that Jesus is real? He is still changing lives. He's raising dead people. He's taking people crippled by sin and bringing healing. Some people just look for reasons not to believe. And that's what these officials were doing. I mean, the evidence is all around them to believe is right there in front of them. And yet they're spending all of their emotional energy and time trying to squash it and marginalize it rather than to honestly consider it. Saying in verse 16, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and we cannot deny it. One of the postures of the culture we're in is sometimes people just don't wanna believe. They find reasons to not believe. They, they argue themselves out of it. And let me just say, it's not turning off your mind. It's honestly considering the transformed lives of those that Christ has changed and asking yourself, why? Asking yourself, could God be involved in that? Okay, in verse 17, it says, but in order that it may spread no further, here's what the officials say. We don't want it to spread any further. Let's warn them to speak no more in, any, in this name. So they called them and they charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Peter finally nails it. No longer willing to deny Christ. He doesn't waver at all. I mean, imagine the scenario, you're standing before the judge and they're ready to throw you in jail. And he says, and you would say, you will no longer, uh, they're saying you no longer preach in this name of Jesus. And, and then you re, you, your response is, you judge for yourself, but I'm gonna continue to speak the name of Jesus. I mean, that's boldness, that's courage. And this passage, along with others in the Bible, show us that we can't always obey the laws of the land. When laws are requiring us to do something against God's laws or God's will, there are those times when you say, I must obey God rather than man. I'm thankful that in Exodus chapter one, the Hebrew midwives refused the laws of Egypt to abort the babies being born. I'm thankful that Daniel refused the king's laws, ordering him to bow down and worship man's authority. I'm also thankful for someone like Martin Luther King Jr. who stood up against the government in a nonviolent way to say these laws that promote racism are against God's law 
of every person being made in the likeness of God. There are times when a government will seek to control or shut down the spread of the gospel and the church must be careful to not mindlessly shut up and submit to every new law or threat of punishment. So what about right now? What about the laws of banning churches from meeting except for when the government says they are allowed and when and how it takes place? And that's a good question, right? That's like a hornet's nest that I could step right into. For some, it's an immediate violation of their first amendment rights and violates their conscience. It's against God's word to not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. For others, it's a willing choice to not gather for a specified period of time to help flatten the curve and to participate in trying to control a rapidly spreading virus. But setting up laws to prohibit churches from gathering and arresting people who do would be wrong. Thankfully, we live in a community. We live in a city where that hasn't happened. Sheriff Ozzy has publicly stated he will not arrest anyone around the state mandated restrictions, but will provide education. So for now, we're willing to lay down some of our rights to go slow towards a complete regathering as a church. And we're not doing it out of the fear of man or reprisal, but from a posture of love towards those who are most vulnerable in our city. I know there's this growing polarization of how we feel about these restrictions. And I wanna encourage us to be respectful of the different lines of thinking about staying at home, keeping strict distances, wearing masks, many businesses that are having to shut down. And I, I have my own opinions, I'm sure you do too, but it would not be walking in love to impose my opinions on you or judge you for not agreeing with me how I'm looking at everything. Let's just be careful because most of us are really sick and really tired of the whole thing. And out of exhaustion and anguish, we can become way too surly and way too self-focused. Let's be forbearing with one another. Try to not make everyone see it one way or your way. We're living in an unprecedented time and there's no clear or simple answers right now. So we need to be honoring of one another's conscience choices around these things and seek the laws of love to guide us. So back to the narrative in Acts 4, these officials had no way to keep them locked up without this public outcry. So they threaten them and they kick them out. And the big question that you and I are gonna have to answer and wrestle with over and over again is this desire to have people like you rather than be men and women who are rooted in the gospel. Being rooted in the gospel means that you're gonna to have to risk some of the social relationships that you have, some of the places you're invited into and some of the ways people interact with you. Proverbs 29 verse 25 says, the fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. I love this. The fear of man, the desire to please man, to be accepted by man so that we're applauded. It's a trap. It doesn't work. The desire to always want to be liked, to be accepted, actually makes you a slave to their approval. Now they're living your life rather than you living your life. 
and you've lost your spine. It's just a sad way to live life. So how is the church to operate in a culture that is increasingly hostile towards what she believes and embraces? Well, let's, let's look at verse 29. We see this right here in the book of Acts. They're being threatened. They're released. Now they're back with the rest of the disciples and they're praying. And in verse 29, it says, and now Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Notice, they just got filled with the Holy Spirit again. Didn't they already get filled with the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter two? See, God's spirit doesn't just wanna live in you, but he wants to fill you, not just once, but over and over again. No matter what you've experienced, there is more. There is an increase in the power of the spirit and he wants to fill you like a sponge. You know, a sponge is filled with water. Well, you know how you receive more water when you're filled? You're poured out and God wants to pour you out in the life of thirsty people, hungry people, hurting people, broken people. And as you're squeezed out, as you are poured out in the needs of others, God will fill you back up. It's awesome how that works as you serve and as you let God use you and speak through you and pray through you, you'll be emptied, but you'll be refilled. Not just to bless you, not just to get goosebumps, but so that you can pour out again and again and again in the life of other people. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Gospel boldness is not a personality trait. It is not just for extroverts. Gospel boldness is, is when we are filled with his spirit. It's for every person, introverts and extroverts. And when you've been with Jesus, when you've been with Jesus, you will love Jesus and you cannot help but speak about Jesus. Being filled with God's spirit, being bold, brothers and sisters, be gracious, be loving, but be bold. We have been pulled out of the miry clay, the scripture tells us. We have been set free from our sin. We have been redeemed and restored and brought into friendship with God. Hallelujah for that. Now we get to offer that good news to a broken and hurting world. Let's pray together. Father God, we just pray that you would help us. Lord, many of us, we have weak legs, weak spines, and we're not even sure why. We're way too quick, Lord, to want people's approval rather than to seek your approval. So God, would you forgive us? And would you cleanse us and empower us? Fill me today, Holy Spirit. Can you ask God for that for your own life right now? God, fill me, anoint me, strengthen me, empower me so that I can live 
a life of boldness and courage in a world that is sometimes hostile back towards me. Lord, would you also just fill us so that we can pour out into other people's lives and help us have the same heart that was in the apostle Paul when he said, if I'm a fool, I'm a fool for Christ. And I thank you, God, that there's a day coming when we won't feel foolish at all. And in the meantime, strengthen our resolve, give us wisdom. And it's in your amazing name, Jesus, that we pray, amen. Let's worship together in this next song.
to you. Lord, I pray that we can declare your power and your beauty over everything that we're going through, Lord. I just, I want to be in wonder of you and your might. Lord, fill us with your spirit. Let your presence overflow wherever we are. Help us to know that you are with us and help those around us to know that you are with us. You are so big. We love getting to sing your praises. In your name we pray, Lord. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. Join us next week at either 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. for our services here at Church Online.